All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Chris Papa, and today we have the first time ever, I'm so happy she's here, Lisa Flicker. How are you doing, Lisa? I'm doing wonderful, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be a part of this. You're going to be leading your own podcast, or we're doing it together, but you'll be, I'll, you know, I'll be, I'll be less of a host. You're, you'll be more of a host sometimes. I'll be more of a host sometimes. And today we had a great, interesting guy, uh, Daniel Eisenstadt, who is the uh, CEO of TerraVet Real Estate Solutions. And folks, vet is the key word here because they own veterinary clinics across the country are institutionalizing that asset class, which is insane to think about, but it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, what did you think of the conversation, Lisa? I thought it was a fantastic conversation. And you know, it's interesting when you think about institutionalizing the space, it, it really does make a lot of sense. It's stable cash flows. Everybody has a pet, especially post pandemic, brings right. their pet to the vet. And notoriously, I think the medical profession and the business world don't always blend. Right. And so having having somebody able to kind of take the the business piece of the real estate and, and oversee that, I think, you know, stable cash flows for the market. It's, it seems great to me. I love his business. He's a, he's an amazing guy. Very, uh, you know, energetic and, and passionate and he, he's super smart. He can explain very complicated uh, concepts and, and, and to put them, you know, make it plain English for us, for myself to understand it. And, uh, yeah, just amazing story and Auschwitz and all that stuff. It's just, uh, he's a great guy and, uh, please enjoy the podcast. And as per usual, please listen, rate and review, and please share the podcast with your friends. Cause, um, we are out there trying to help folks learn more about the real estate industry and the different pathways you can take. Uh, so have a great weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Vet Real Estate Solutions. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And then we have uh, our co-host, wonderful co-host, her first time co-hosting, Lisa Flicker. Welcome, Lisa. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So TerraVet, what a, yeah. when I saw you guys, I was like, I didn't, even, I mean, I know this is obviously, it's an, it's an asset. I didn't know it was an asset class. It's like, becoming one. <laughs> it's pretty we're, cool. We're doing everything we can to make it one. We, that, I think, in fairness, I like to think we were really the first movers institutionally. There now are four or five firms that are actually pursuing it on an institutional or semi-institutional basis. But um, yeah, about a decade ago, we got interested in it. So I've done, I mean, Lisa and I, like our day job is we do executive search for the real estate industry. Yep. So I was, I was telling Lisa, I've done, we got hired by a, a private equity firm that bought into a, a plasma center business. And like, yep. so I was hired to find like, find me somebody that can expand my pla my plasma center business type of thing. And I was like, holy yep. smokes, what a obscure type of business. What a niche. Yeah. But it's also like, wow, like you, you roll this stuff up into, you could, you know, once you get the model down, you can just expand it. Right. It's just. It yeah. So, I mean, this, I mean, I'll give you the short story on it is that I left the, the family, multifamily office, private equity group I was with about, I guess, 13 years ago to co-found a roll-up of 
animal hospitals, the operating businesses. And that was called Community Veterinary Partners. So myself and a couple of guys co-founded it over five years, grew it to like 40 locations, uh, recapped it with a private equity firm. And we realized at that point, like, hey, you know, we'll stay on as board members, but like we're kind of deal guys, we're entrepreneurial, we're not sure we want to stay on and continue to operate. Along the way, the second veterinary hospital we bought, um, I got a call from the veterinarian's husband and he said to me, hey, you know, um, our kid's going to college. Uh, you, you know, you put a, gave us a lease. We, we bought community vet partners, bought the practice for them, but they held on to the building. And he said, kids going to college. I think I want to sell the building. And I looked at the lease and you have a right of first refusal. So are you interested in buying the building? <laughs> and I said, I don't know <laughs> what's it worth, right? Like, you know, and he said, I just had it appraised for a million dollars. And I said, I'll buy it. And he, and I knew I said, I'd buy it because I knew our rent on it was $135,000. And, mm. you know, I can do that math and that works. <laughs> so then we negotiated and I think we paid 1.2 million for it. Right. Mm. And that's when the light bulb went off and this is a decade ago. And I knew that a lot of institutional capital had gone into buying the operating practices, the veterinary practices. So there are now 70 different corporate groups at the time. There were probably 20 with a ton of private equity backing Mars is in M&M's is the largest player globally. Oh, really? Yeah, by far the largest. The, the I know Mars they own family, they own Alpo. I know M&M's. You got Alpo. it. So the, the the progression is that the Mars family got interested in um, animal health and veterinary through the food business. They own Pedigree Cat Food, Alpo, and they started to see the demographics and said, you know, I, this is my interpretation. Maybe we're a little short on sugar and long on pets, right? And <laughs> since they're thinking over a long period of time. So they then went ahead and bought into both in North America, they own Veterinary Centers of America, they own Banfield, which is uh, in PetSmart, um, and they own uh, a, a specialty emergency group. And then in Europe and in Asia, I think they're the largest player. So they're, they're, their business now, this is interesting, a little nugget, Mars, which is the third largest private company in the world, I think more than $50 billion of revenue. More than 50% of their revenue is pet, as in pet food and veterinary, and less than 50% is candy. So, like, anyway, you, so. I, I know this off topic. My So, I grew up in West northwestern Jersey, mm -hmm. 20 minutes from the Mars factory headquarters. Oh, really? And my best friend, to this day, is my best friend. We grew up next to each other. His dad was ended up being, like, one of the highest-ranking Mars really? uh, people there, like, right below, like, the Mars family, right? And he would travel around the world. He eventually was working for like the Alpo and he would travel around the world with different Alpo factories and stuff that were like needed turnaround. So my, you know, he lived in Australia and my, my buddy moved to Toronto for that stuff. So I like, yep. I knew all about like, Alpo and and Mars for some right, reason like, so, weird. <laughs> so weird. It doesn't feel like it goes together, right? You yeah. have Alpo, or you could have a Snickers bar, <laughs> or you could have Hershey, a kiss. Yeah, when I was a kid, you know, we used to get like free candy. Then when you got into the dog food, like we had the block parties, and the block parties were just all free dog food. <laughs> we ate it; it was free. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Perfect. So, yeah, tell, so me, yeah, tell me about the how the, how did the firm like? So that's how the firm started. Like, kind of yeah. tell me like how did it become you're like oh this is kind of a cool gig right but then when did it become like this is going to be my job yeah so for the first few years i was you know part-time with our old business community veterinary partners and sort of buying on a one-off basis properties that probably was the first six seven properties we bought and then after a couple of years of that um uh one of my 
partners, a guy named Dan Feinberg, I convinced him, he had a background at Marcus and Millichap, and I convinced him he should join me and we were going to, we're going to go out and raise an institutional fund. So up until then it was kind of, you know, it was kind of past the hat and we'd raise a very small proof of concept fund. And so Dan joined me and another friend um, who's a private equity guy with a family office named Sam Levine joined as vice chair. And we went out and said, we're going to raise an institutional fund because we had conviction. This is six, seven years ago that no one was doing it. And that if we could get Mars or a subsidiary of Mars to guarantee a lease and get long leases on 10,000 foot freestanding buildings in Scarsdale, for example, right? That seemed like if we could buy those at, you know, back then eight or nine caps, that seemed like a pretty good business, right? right. And so we, we went out and we raised our first institutional fund, which is an $80 million equity fund. And we were very fortunate that the Pritzker organization, Tom Pritzker's family office, uh, uh, the Pritzker family that founded Hyatt Hotels. Um, so Tom Pritzker's family office became our largest uh, investor and also wow. bought a small piece of our management company and the GP. And so we invested that fund uh, over a period of years, fully invested, it's doing great, um, generating great cash on cash returns. And we started to selectively sell it. And then we, um, on the heels of that, uh, about, I guess, two, 18 months ago, raised our, what's our fund three, our second institutional fund, which is a $190 million fund. Congrats. Again, the, the, the Pritzker family is the largest investor, but there's a bunch of family offices, a couple of insurance companies, a lot of registered investment advisor clients, high net worth clients in it. So, uh, and then the business started to scale. We started to hire biz dev and build out a real infrastructure. We now have a team of about 12 people. Um, we own, we're coming up on about half a billion dollars of primarily veterinary real estate uh, in about 35 states. So that's amazing. Yeah. So. That, you know, I love to tell when students reach out to me and they want help and they're trying to figure out what to do with their careers, I tell them, listen to this podcast. And so I'd love if you could just like dumb it down for a minute. Not that, sure. I mean, probably all these students are smarter than me, but Take us through like, okay, so what do you look for yep. and what's the, what's the process? Because yeah. I think it's interesting to young people who grow up in a place where they're like, I don't know, I could be a fireman or I could be a doctor or I could work at the bank. What, right. Are those the jobs? Or I could try and dunk on a seven foot basket. There you like. go. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. So look, I, 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 it's probably helpful to do like a single property, you know, and think about that in terms of the economics on that. Right. And then maybe think about how, what we look for a little bit. So on the single property, basically, you know, what, uh, what we're looking for is a freestanding building um, that is in a typically suburban area in a top hundred metro in the U.S. that has a long standing tenant that is a veterinary practice. Right. Usually four doctors or more. And these are these are sort of you, you get we can all imagine or think of ones in our community, probably. They're kind of communal institutions. Most of the clients live within 10 minutes, right? And uh, around there, the doctors typically live within 15, 20 minutes. They're very stable. You have no concentration in terms of customers, right? They have thousands of pets they're seeing. Um, it Veterinary is very stable because it's all private pay. So you don't have to worry about reimbursement risk and changes in you know healthcare reimbursement. And so we'll go and negotiate. Typically, we'll buy that building from a veterinarian. Uh, 
because most of the real estate in the veterinary sector is still owned by veterinarians who 20, 30 years ago built a practice and built a building, right? And so if we buy that building for $2 million, right, and we can borrow, let's just say to make it easy, a million dollars on it, if we're buying the, the $2 million practice and um, let's just, again, we'll make it easy. This doesn't really exist, but let's just say the rent on it's $200,000 and it's triple net lease. That is, there's literally no responsibilities we have for maintenance, for real estate taxes or for insurance. So it's, we own it, but the tenant, which is, let's just say a subsidiary of Mars, Veterinary Centers of America is paying us $200,000 a year. Mm. So if I can do that, I pay $2 million. If I didn't borrow anything on it, my cash on cash return would be 10%, right? But if I can borrow $100,000 at 5%, right? Now, all of a sudden, my cash on cash return, depending on how I structure my borrowing, is 12 or 13%, right? Or, or more, actually, 14% in that case, right? So, and then what I've negotiated in advance is a 10, I'm very interested in long leases, right? So I've got a 10-year lease. So I've got a guarantee from a multi-billion dollar subsidiary of Mars uh, for 10 years. Yeah. And there's a rent escalation. So there's a 2% rent escalation. So even in inflationary times, it may not be like inflation is today, but it's it's keeping up. So that's my single building. That, that's pretty good, right? But if we, we now to turn it into a business, we went out and raised a fund from investors and said, we're going to do that same story 10 times, 20 times, 50 times a year. And we're going to aggregate all those cash flows and there'll be some expense because you're going to pay us a management fee and we have to have an audit and there's going to be some expenses but we can generate for you investors seven eight percent cash on cash returns yield basically on your investment right so that's kind of what we're doing now the way we make money like a lot of real estate fund businesses is we get paid a management fee and we get paid a carried interest uh basically basically a share of the profit we're creating for the investors, but that's that's at its very basic, the business. Um, the other things that we are interested in, since I think that's that's where you were headed, you know, heading in the question was, you know, we're very interested, we'll look at what the rent per square foot is on the building. And we're pretty interested in making sure that it's pretty close to market. So one of the problems or challenges in the sector that we're in is typically it starts out with a practice and the real estate being owned by the same veterinarian. Right. Mm. And so there's they can set the rent at whatever they want. Right. And so the problem is, if we end up buying a property and to use my example, the rent is two hundred thousand. But that works out to be a thousand dollars a square foot in an area that doesn't. You know, I mean, that that makes no sense. Right. Or we we're paying. Sorry, let's say it's a hundred bucks a square foot on the rental. Right. And it's a twenty dollar per square foot market. Well, that's great for 10 years, right? Because we have a guarantee, but we go to release it. No one in their right mind is going to be paying that per square foot. So it's in a way I bought an asset with imaginary rents. So I'd rather make sure that my rents are much closer to market. So there's that sort of stuff that we need to make sure of. We do a lot of diligence on the actual underlying practice on the corporate groups that are are their balance sheet. And then we'll do real estate diligence, environmental, um, a property condition report, survey, title, and the like. And and I'd say, last quick thing in terms of us, like I think what makes it a little different is we buy very, very uh, few properties from intermediaries. Um, less than 10% of everything we've bought are through intermediaries. We tend to go and either source directly from veterinarians through their accountants, their 
broke their business broker or the you know someone they know um and will source that way and so it's a it's off market um or we have relationships with these corporate groups that are out acquiring practices and so the mm-hmm. business development person for a corporate group is reaching out to dr smith saying i'd like to buy your practice in scarsdale and dr smith might say well that's great but then if you buy my practice i want you to buy my real estate mm-hmm. and in many cases the corporate groups don't want to buy the real estate so they will say, hey, we have a real estate partner, Caravet. They'll buy your real estate and close at the same time that we close on the acquisition of the practice. So we become kind of a joint venture partner with the corporate group that becomes our tenant, but they're also sourcing for us. So that's a little bit about how we're sourcing. Sorry, I may have asked. asked no, that's more great. And then what about like what about an exit strategy? Like are yeah, these so like buildings years- only going to be for vets for the remainder of? the rest of life? So it's a good question. So a few years ago, you know, a number of investors had always said, you know, you guys were the first movers. How do we know that there's an exit here? How do, like who's buying this? Right. And we've always said there are public net lease REITs that have always, always is too strong for the last 15 years have been buying veterinary real estate. Um, they haven't been aggressive at it because there aren't portfolios. So we said, why don't we take a small portfolio of five of our buildings and market them to public REITs? and see if we can prove out that in fact, we could buy at X cap rate and sell at a cap rate much lower and make money, right? And so we did that about two, two and a half years ago and sold for, I think, you know, a little over two times what we bought it for and a 26% IRR. So, you know, that was a good, and we sold to a public REIT. Hmm. Um, And there were four or five public REITs interested and a couple of private REITs. So what, what since then has happened is um, there are now seven or eight public REITs that are interested that are starting to compete a little bit with us, but are always interested if we're selling portfolios. And then there's an active, a more active intermediary market where there are uh, folks that are trying to uh, find properties for 1031 tax exchange buyers for local real estate players. So now there we've created a lot of competition. And then now in the last two years, three years, we have now a few different groups, um, semi-institutional and institutional. There's a group that um, uh, we just created a REIT. They had created a REIT. There's a group that's a medical office building fund group that's now has a veterinary focus. So there's now, you know, there's now an active market. Um, We're probably still the largest in terms of assets, uh, you know, but but exit's less of a concern. Um, For us, I think just, you know, to keep going on it, I think for us, there'll be one of a few exits. So we just launched a, a private REIT, uh, which I can I can speak to. But um, the I think there's one of three exits. Either we'll sell to a public REIT, a big portfolio sale. Um, we will get to scale where it makes sense. And it's accretive to everyone for us to merge the funds into our private REIT and try an IPO and be the first ever veterinary or largely veterinary public REIT, right? One can dream. Um, or third, there's now so many private REITs that the largest, you know, asset manager, the Blackstones and the Carlisles of the world have raised that they're looking for niche real estate plays that that might also be an exit. So who knows? I, I, I don't think any of that's anytime soon, given the current market and we've got a lot of dry powder and a lot of, you know, continue room to grow, but that's probably where this goes. That's fascinating. And do you, do you look for practices that have more than four vets because you want to make sure they're they're 
going to be around for a long time? Is that kind of the strategy in, in that yeah, massive number? It's a great question. There's sort of two reasons, right? One, I always get concerned about, I mean, there's sort of a, a private equity line about being nervous of businesses where the assets walk out the door every day, right? <laughs> the, right. And it's all the more true if you, you know, if you're buying a practice that's a single veterinarian, right? So right. all of a sudden they get hit by a bus, boy, that's not good, right? So in terms of, you know, as a as a um, landlord, a little less concerned about that, right? Because at the end of the day, as long as your 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 tenant can continue to operate, okay. But there's a shortage of veterinarians, like there's a shortage of a lot of doctors, but there's an acute shortage of veterinarians. Huh. So one of the concerns is that if, you know, you have a if you have a two doctor practice and one doctor leaves on maternity leave. And another doctor quits, you got a major problem, right? Or even if you have a three doctor practice, you know, one of the things we look at a lot is um, what in real estate we talk about is coverage ratios. So EBITDA to rent and EBITDA to rent coverage in, in our sector is phenomenal. It's usually over four times, but it's a little bit of a fantasy because if you have a two doctor practice and you have four times coverage, but one doctor leaves, yeah. you know, your EBITDA right. just went way down, right? So what we've found is when you have a five doctor, an eight doctor clinic, the chances that even if two or three leave, at least from a landlord point of view, that we're fine mm. is very high, right? Because they're still going to be profitable. They're still going to be working. It may not be as, as profitable for the tenant, but they're okay. So it's just a more stable tenant base. Are you, um, you go to a lot of veterinary like, uh, roadshow or like uh, or conferences and stuff oh yeah if you want you guys can tag along there's some big ones yeah surprise surprise they're in orlando and vegas every oh, year yeah. Love it. and uh and you know and actually you know i've been doing this you know by the way this is it's interesting about your question earlier about you know um students that ask about you know different careers like if someone had told me i'd go to law school to go to do you know a nonprofit in poland to go to to do private equity and then to do a roll up of that hospital, then like, you know, you can't plan yeah. that. Right? Oh, yeah. But I've been living in this sector now for almost 13 years. Um, and so, you know, we know a lot of people. One of the nice things I would say about the sector, and it is a niche, is that it's a passion profession, veterinarians, right? Like most yeah. veterinarians, they decide they want to be veterinarians when they're like nine years old and they love animals, right? And people often, from a business point of view, people often compare veterinary practices to dental practices. And my joke about this is that they're sort of similar, except that I've never met a dentist who went to dental school because he loved teeth, yeah. right? They went because like their uncle was a dentist or yeah. they didn't get a medical, whatever it was. Whereas almost every veterinarian, they're passionate about animals, which is by the way, both a good thing and it can be complicated, right? Because, but what's good as I think about it as a, as a landlord, as a, developer is you've got a, a group of people that really want to be doing what they're doing. Right. And so if you can, as a landlord, provide them a good facility and as an owner of a practice, provide them with a reasonable place to practice good medicine, they're going to keep doing that. Right. And there's also good tailwinds because you, as we all know, during the pandemic, pet population grew, everyone got a dog, right. right. Exponentially and, for sure. Yeah. Right. Totally. And, um, what's also sort of interesting is that people, the human animal bond is shifting so that people are, and you've probably seen this too, spending more on taking care of their pets as if they were their kids, right? Mm -hmm. And 
So there's all sorts of diagnostic procedures. There's end of life procedures. There's chemo. I mean, there's, there's, by the way, there's kidney dialysis for dogs now. Uh, You know, there, so, so when you think about those tailwinds, you know, you have an enormous demand for services and you have a passionate professional base. It's a pretty, it's a pretty good niche. So Anyway, but yes, I've spent a lot of time at veterinary conferences. And just because they're good vets doesn't mean they're good business people, right? So maybe their practices is correct business wise. Correct. There's there's a sub segment that are really excellent entrepreneurs, and I have a number of friends who have built generational wealth as veterinarians, right? Guys who started out with nothing, twenty five years later have five practices that they sold for a hundred million dollars, right? Like. You know, as I like to say, America is a great country, right? And uh, and and but the average—that's not the average veterinarian. The average veterinarian is probably a, a associate veterinarian working in a practice, not getting paid that much. And even the average practice owner is, you know, is sort of making a living and doing okay. Um, so there's a wide range um, for sure. Would you ever try to get involved in the operating company? You know, offering even if it wasn't you offering ancillary services to help them build out their businesses so i because i did that before one of the things right, that's, that's why I that, yeah i figured one of the challenges is because we have so many of the operators the corporate operators that are our tenants one of my commitments to them is that i need to be switzerland right okay. they don't want a landlord who is their competitor right they they so yeah. i and i need to be and i'm perfectly happy so we will continue to stay only on the real estate side of this there's a lot of white space um, and look, the other thing I would just say about Terabit is there's a little bit of a, of, of a dip our toe in the water about growing Terabit into Terra Health um, because we've started to look at other niches that are um, similar type of real estate and similar tenants. So, for example, we own a handful of human ophthalmology ambulatory surgery centers. Um, all of those buildings are freestanding buildings. The tenant is a private equity-backed ophthalmology group, right? And the building was owned by a group of ophthalmologists that we bought it from. Maybe we sourced it from the private equity-backed ophthalmology group. So I think over time, we'll continue to be super majority veterinary, but it wouldn't shock me if we ended up having some dermatology real estate, some sports medicine, some more ophthalmology, maybe dental. So in, in a way, our thesis, I would say, is I started at veterinary, but it's kind of a consumer-driven healthcare thesis, which is if we think about when we were kids, most of the medical office buildings were small medical office buildings that you went into to go to your dentist, or right? Um, the veterinarian was probably in a converted house, right? What's happened now is a lot of those practices are in retail real estate locations, mm-hmm. right? The veterinarian building's in a 10,000-foot building on a main road, right? The um, dentist is in a small uh, strip center, right? The dermatologist may be in a in in their own dermatology, you know, center, right? So the op- the ophthalmologist has a freestanding building with a surgery, ambulatory surgery center for cataracts. So the nature of how we live, which is we want earlier hours and later hours, right? And we want convenience, has driven the real estate for these type of practices out of those office buildings and into retail locations. And I think that'll continue as the Amazon effect means that um, there are some, there are more retail vacancies and more and more gets filled in from, you know, staples becoming service retail, for example, um, or blockbuster becoming, you know, a healthcare retail uh, space. So anyway, that's, 
the broader thesis. So you you find that most of these are they are they net lease? Are they are they are you providing triple management? net lease? Yeah, we 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 have a few buildings where we're playing. You know, they're multi tenant, but but they're usually sixty or seventy percent veterinary, and then there's a little other, and we'll manage that. But the vast majority are freestanding, single tenant, triple net lease. Gotcha. And then, and it's mo so half of it's kind of, and most of it's not institutional, right? Is that kind of what you're finding? Uh, well, ninety five percent of our tenants are, I would argue, institutional, meaning they 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 are they have sold their practice to a corporate veterinary group. None of them are credit tenants, right? Um, none of them are like uh, you know Walgreens, right? But most of them have either a private equity back or a family office back or a Mars or something like that. Mm. And they have professional management and they have professional capital. So in certain respects, that helps me because um, we can get a guarantee from that corporate group. So I, I'm going to look at how's the practice doing? How are those five veterans? Yeah, what about the actual doing? buildings are in? What's that? The oh, the build buildings. Yeah. yeah. The buildings. It's interesting whether institutional or not. Like not classically most of them are not classically institutional in that like many of them are in a converted bank building or maybe there's a building that was built out but it's a five thousand foot building and it's kind of small right um some of them are in buildings that i think you know would qualify as institutional but i think what part of what we're doing is we're making buildings that could be institutional institutional by virtue of our purchase of them right yeah. and more importantly i think Many of the leases are not institutional because the veterinarian negotiated with a corporate group and didn't get a great lease. And so part of what we're doing when we come in is maybe the building is institutional. It was purpose built. It's in good location, et cetera. But the lease is not institutional grade. So we're buying a building and we're renegotiating a lease with a tenant to make it institutional. Um, and so I'd say 99% of our leases are institutional now. And what about um, like so you you raising a fund you got a hundred twenty million dollar fund like what sort of so is is there any like is there a hold period that you have or like with these funds or is it just yeah it's a great question so we we have two institutional funds each of them has a ten year okay. hold period with ability to extend but we just raised um, this private REIT Teravit REIT really I think and it address it goes to the question of hold period in part right one of the challenges with funds is timing matters, right? You want to, and this is true of any fund, you want to invest when you can buy well and you want to sell when you can sell well, right? right. So buy low, sell high, right? And I if, taught him that at Harvard Business School. Yeah, by the way, it, I actually, you could skip, by the way, one of my favorite lines about Harvard Business School is there's no BS like HBS. And so that is, <laughs> right? So, so, so the answer in a way, what's interesting about, um, the REIT is it's an evergreen entity. It doesn't have a time, a long, a, an end period. Um, it is, it is essentially set up as a forever vehicle. And that's because the investors in it are looking only for yield over a very long period of time. Right. And so what, what's good about that is that you can, let's say you start buying in the REIT at a time like now where, where rates are going up and where, your prices are going up, right? That's okay because as long as you keep buying, you're going to buy through a variety of cycles, right? And so you're going to essentially dollar cost average into a reasonable purchase if you're good at it. 
And the folks that are investing in that type of permanent vehicle aren't looking for a big home run. They're just looking for consistent cash flow in a non-correlated niche uh, area. And so that's really the idea. That's part of the idea of the REIT. And, and by the way, I should, one of the things uh, that I always laugh about is, you know, the non-correlated piece of this is good. We were talking earlier about how this is a niche. I have a friend who is a successful venture capitalist in Israel. And he does high-tech venture capital. And his joke with me is whenever he's invested, he's, he's, he says, I can think of nothing that is less correlated with Israeli high-tech than, you know, dog and cat <laughs> real estate in the United States, right? Like, so, so, um, but the other thing about, so anyway, that's, I'd say the time period, time horizon of the read is different than the funds. Yeah. Um, the other driver, just, just as I'm mentioning the read, the other driver of the read is that we realized that that some of these super successful veterinarians that I was mentioning before, who've been incredibly entrepreneurial and have built generational wealth, when they sell their practices, they keep the real estate and they end up with really good real estate, 10 million, 15 million, $20 million of real estate. And when I approach them to sell me their real estate, they say, why would I do that? Right? I don't need the money. If I sell it to you, I got to pay capital gains tax. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I got to figure out where to invest it. And I'm not going to like my options more than my veterinary real estate, right? And so my answer to them was, you're right, <laughs> you shouldn't sell it to me, but maybe there's a solution, which is if I could create an entity that allowed you to swap your $10 million property for a little piece of 50 other properties, other mm -hmm. veterinary properties, and you could do that on a tax-deferred basis and immediately get diversification, right? you might say, well, that I might be interested in, right? And yeah. that's really what we're doing with this REIT. We basically have set it up where we're only really going for the top quartile of veterinary real estate. And we're saying to those super successful veterinarians, contribute your property, swap it in what is known as a Section 721 upgrade. Jeez Louise, that. I don't even know that one. Lisa yeah, was like, a oh, public, Lisa was a public accountant. Do you remember? Anything? Yeah, right. <laughs> I can't say I'm. I was a CPA at one point, but I can't say mm -hmm. I did any of that. You play That's one on TV, right now. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. Exactly. The uh, yeah. So the 720 is like a 1031 exchange, except it's an exchange of a property for a partnership interest, where the partnership is super majority or almost entirely real estate. So the IRS says, listen, if we're going to let you swap one building for another building in a like-kind exchange, why wouldn't we let you swap one building for a partnership interest in a bunch of buildings, right? It's sort of, yeah. it has yeah. a similar, so it's, a, and it, so a lot of REITs, we didn't come up with this, a lot of public REITs do exactly that already. We're just applying it to the veterinary sector. Um, and so far it's, you know, I think it's an interesting approach. Um, we feel, you know, I feel like it's serving a, uh, a void in the market a bit. Um, so anyway, we're excited about that as well. That's awesome. Do you find vets come to you with properties now because of the word of mouth? One one vet trusts you, tells his buddy, who tells his buddy or tells her buddy that? Yes. And what we did with this REIT is, and you may have seen this, we co-founded the REIT with a few really entrepreneurial, successful veterinarians. And they have called their friends and people have said, oh, if so-and-so is in this, he's really smart and he's done really well. Let me introduce them to Dan maybe I want to look at doing the same thing with my real estate. And so it is very much word of mouth. The REIT is super majority owned by veterinarians now, probably will be for some time until we raise outside capital because uh, we put very little capital into it. Almost all the REIT has been these kind of swap transactions to date. Um, so it's, so it's, you know, it's a pretty neat uh, evolution for us. Are you, um, 
Like what's getting into like the like the structure of the company? You have you, you have two, you have a partner, right? And then you have like, how did you fill out the org chart? And what was like the most? What's the hardest? Yeah. Like as recruiters, we're always curious. Like what's the hardest thing to learn when you're hiring people and like the hardest position you had to fill? And like, how have you yeah, seen it change I, over the years? Like as right now, have you hired people recently? And because it seems like a lot of sure. people are having a hard time finding good talent. So we have, we've made a couple of hires recently. Um, you know, I think it, you guys do this professionally. Like, I think you're totally right. What is an important hire at different stages is very different, right? So, you know, initially, you know, um, I got very lucky. My partner, Dan, has a lot of real estate experience and, you know, he's our president and he can run all of the execution um, and underwriting um, for us. Um I'd say another important hire is we hired a guy who had 15 years of experience in the veterinary sector, had been a business development guy for one of the corporate groups. I used to compete against him. We were friendly. And his name is Peter Kilkelly. He's a terrific biz dev guy. So he knows, you know, everyone in the veterinary sector. You know, one of our competitors recently said to me, when I see Peter walking down the aisle of these conferences, <laughs> like people are ready to kiss the ring, right? Right. Like, you yeah. know, so, <laughs> So, but Peter knows brokers and intermediaries and lawyers. And so he's able to, if you will, shake the trees and has generated really a lot of uh, deal flow for us, right? So um, more recently, um, about, uh, I guess almost two years ago, we brought, um, uh, we hired a general counsel and brought a lawyer in-house because our pace of transactions is high. Um, one of the challenges in the sector, it's not like I'm buying $20, $30 million real estate a lot. I'm buying a million, $2 million building. So I think this year we'll do, we'll we'll make more than forty five acquisitions, and we'll sell fifteen buildings. Mm -hmm. So you know that's a high transaction yeah. flow. So we brought a general counsel, and he's terrific. He came from the law firm that has represented us, and we hired a, a guy that was a uh, I think a fourth or fifth year associate. He's been great, and then we hired um, a paralegal um, to support him. We'll probably hire more paralegals. We used a recruiter for that. Um, and then more, uh, more recently we, and, and then we hired early on someone with good, a couple of people with good background in real estate, lease administration, mm -hmm. property administration. And more recently we've been, um, adding and building out a finance team. So we'd outsourced that initially, and now we just hired a controller in the last year. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, I think our next hires will probably be on the paralegal side and the business development side. Um, but we'll see. One of the nice things I have to say that's nice about this business versus an operating business is you can own a, a lot of assets without, you know, having a huge team. Right. So, yeah. You know, and they manage. Know, yeah. And they're managed It's triple net, it's net lease. So that's like, correct. yeah, it's not that complicated. It's it's, you know, now having said that, when you get to a few hundred buildings, you know, there's a real property administration. Right. You got to pay local taxes. I mean, there's all the normal stuff. And we also now we're probably going to hire a recruiter more recently to hire a director of real estate because we have consent rights on renovations of any significance in a lot of these buildings. So at any one time, there's 15 or 20 small projects that our tenants are pursuing. And then we right now have seven or eight projects that are renovation expansions that are mm -hmm. material where we're funding the expansion. So again, in all of those, we've got to manage you know enough of that renovation expansion. So we all of a sudden have a material, you know, real estate manager that's out there. We have a, right now have a part-time owner's rep consultant who's mm. been a GC, but 
we're going to go out and look to hire someone that's a multi-site, you know, kind of project manager, construction manager type of person. So I really want to hear about your not-for-profit. Tell me a little bit about it. I read a little bit online. So my mom is a child Holocaust survivor. My uh, grandparents fled Poland in 1939 and my mother was born during the war in Tajikistan of all places and then came to America in 1949 when she was seven years old. So that issue of Holocaust memory has always been a pretty deep um, part of my experience. And so it's a much longer story, but I, while I was on a fellowship in Israel, I met a, uh, a guy who had been a successful entrepreneur and was a, was a philanthropist who had this idea of creating a Jewish visitor center and museum near Auschwitz in Poland. Hmm. And I, um, the short story is I walked up to him after he talked about this idea and he was a classic pitch man, a great sales guy, <laughs> always had a bunch of ideas. And I said to him, his, 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 you guys may even remember the name from New York. His trade name was Fred the Furrier. I don't know if you remember the no. commercials in the 70s. He did his I own do. commercials. You do, right? So Fred. That's awesome. I, I said, Fred, like, I understand in my gut what you're doing because of my own history and experience. I've been to Auschwitz. I said, but like, do you have any idea what you're getting yourself into? Like, this is like, you know, post-communist country and Catholic church and Catholic Jewish relations and politics and memory, like complicated, right? And he smiled at me and he said, Danny, I have no idea whatsoever. but but as an entrepreneur i can tell you it's a huge advantage for two reasons he said first it's probably going to take twice as long and be twice as expensive as i think it's going to be and if i knew it i might not do it right he said but secondly he said one of the things that i've learned as an entrepreneur is that sometimes knowledge isn't helpful and sometimes if you don't have explicit knowledge you, you're sort of unencumbered by all of the potential problems and you can see potential creativity in other places. And I remember thinking like, wow, I think I may have just heard entrepreneurial wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. And so ignorance I said, is blessed. Ignorance. Ooh. So I said, Fred, that's really interesting. I'm going to go to law school, but why don't I start working with you on this project? And so we were on a business plan. I spent the first summer after part of the first summer after law school in the town of Auschwitz for wow. about wow. three or four weeks. And then, you know, much longer story short, I, I left practicing law uh, and everyone thought I was nuts to be the first employee of the Auschwitz Jewish Center Foundation. And uh, four years later, we had done five or six real estate transactions in Poland, assembled a site, built a small visitor center. It gets about, I get, get 70 to 100,000 visitors a year now. Uh, and um, it, it's been operating for 20 odd years. We found a director who's great, who's there. I continue to be on the board. So I did that full time for about three and a half, almost four years to get it long. Wow, that's crazy, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So it was a little crazy. That, that is incredible. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors as well. And I we have a buddy here in New York who runs the Center for the Arts. And they have a a lot of art that was taken yeah. at the time. And he keeps telling me, he's like, you know, come here. We might be able to find stuff that belongs to your grandparents. Totally someday. true. It's crazy stuff. So, so anyway, yeah. that's so that, but, that's you know, beautiful. Thank you. And by the way, I always joke that you know, I'm pretty sure I only got into Harvard Business School because they had a lot of guys applying from Goldman Sachs, <laughs> only one from the Auschwitz Center. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey. Right. So you know, that's awesome. It really worked out. So. Uh, how's the weather in Philly? <laughs> it's pretty good. Are you ready to heat? Are you ready to heat it up with the hot seat? the hot seat oh 
Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Do you have a book and or podcast recommendation? Uh, yeah, so I am a huge Winston Churchill fan. Okay. Um, so um, William Manchester's The Last Lion is like a part one, I think, or part two of a what was going to be a three-part history of Churchill, and it's pretty awesome. Um, my podcast recommendation is Acquired. It's a podcast by two really smart venture capitalists in Silicon Valley that talk about tech companies and how they come about, but they've expanded now. They've done uh, three episodes on Buffett and Standard Oil. And anyway, for, for business junkies, they're really smart and they're, it's a good podcast. Do you have any advice Look for someone looking to start out in, let's say, real estate or, yeah, let's say real estate? Yeah, um, I would say my biggest advice would be to start, right? I think I think a lot of people, um, there's nothing wrong with planning, but, you know, um, in most businesses and certainly in real estate, you, you know, the hardest thing is to get started. And once you're moving, it's like, it's like when a car is moving, getting a little bit of momentum allows you to move much more easily. And so, I, you know, I think one of the nice things, in, I think, in real estate is you can start buying or investing in or working on smaller transactions and learn a lot along the way, you know, there's a, I think a tendency of, you know, I need to, to, you know, make the perfect deal. And, you know, it's like, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. I right. I'd say, get started, learn as you're going, you'll iterate and it's okay. I mean, that's sort of probably the, the advice I'd give. Nice. Yeah. What, what do you think separates people that like have done? I mean, I've never done my own real estate deal. Like I've, yeah. I've invested in other deals, but I'm like, I've never, I've never pulled the trigger on my own one. Like what, what do you think separates me from people who are like you who are doing actually doing that? Well, like, so look, I mean, to be fair, I've done a couple of real estate transactions where I've had a lot of my own money in it, but most of the time I've raised small pools of capital or larger pools of capital to do it. Right. So I think the real estate investing world divides out a little bit. And this is true about, I think, entrepreneurs also, there's a group that will say, I'm going to bootstrap and I'm put as much as my money in. I'm going to have what I would say are giant cojones, right? Because <laughs> if it works, it's great. It's all my money and I'm going to make all the money. And if it doesn't, I'm going to lose all my money. And then there's a group of entrepreneurs in real estate. And otherwise it'll say, you know what? I'm happy to put some of my money in, but I'm going to go find investors. And that's going to mean that, you know, my upside is going to be limited because I'm giving away ownership in it, but my downside's limited because I have people to share. So I think either are valid. Uh, my risk tolerance tends to be, and I like partnerships. So I've always liked the idea of having investors. I'm comfortable with it. Um, 
But I think that one of the things that's hard is, is people either sort of feel like I don't want to have investors and then I just got to put all my money in and that's scary. Or they say, I don't know how I'd find investors. And, you know, so I think this issue of capitalization becomes a complicated issue a little bit. OPM, other people's money. OPM. You got Much the easier to do it that way. It um, is, although I have to tell you, then, you, you know, if you're, if you're a decent and honorable person, you sweat in a different way, right? Because you get course. to know your investors and, you know, uh, you have real relationships and, you know, right. And so, you know, and, and also I think it, it should, and it does change your risk tolerance, right? There are, right, yeah. there are transactions I would do if it was just my money, but I know like, I can't look at an investor and say, I took this risk. Right. So, but I, I hear you. So kind of to that, to different people in the way they think when you're hiring people, is there anything in particular, a characteristic you look for, a question you ask to kind of get to the heart of it? Yeah, um, I think two things. One, I, I want to find people that don't take themselves too seriously. That sense of humor, I think, is an underrated, uh, uh, important thing, right? Ability to laugh at oneself. You know, it just, it just, it seems to me that that is a good trait in any job. Um, and it goes to sort of, I think it goes to emotional intelligence. Um, so I think that's one. And the other one is um, intellectual curiosity, right? Like I've met a lot of people that are incredibly well-trained in lots of things, but they tend to be a little robotic about some of their thinking. And that's very, very hard, particularly in a small, uh, smaller company where you, you really want is you want people to think, right? Like, so I have a, <laughs> this is a little bit of a tangent, but my, um, I have a law school professor who the day before our first exam, he said, you know, I want to give you all two pieces of advice. He said, the first thing is, you know, I want you to consider that tomorrow in my exam is like the first at bat at what is hopefully a long career. And like, if you're in baseball and you're at your first at bat, like you want to put the bat on the ball. You don't need to hit home run, right? Yeah. Like solid swing. Don't get too concerned, right? He said, the second thing is that you're at a good law school for many of you you've only taken exams where you actually, when you see the question, you know the answer. And he said, and if I've done my job, tomorrow when you read the question, you're not gonna know the answer. And he said, and some of you are gonna freak out. <laughs> and he said, I wanna suggest an alternative approach. <laughs> he said, I want you to turn your paper over, take a deep breath and say to yourself, what we know as we get older, which is that when we get questions that we don't know the answers to, we get excited because it gives us an opportunity to think. And then say to yourself, oh, wait, what do I think about this? How would I think about this? And and he said, then turn your paper over and try and embrace that, right? So I think I love hiring people that could think about that advice, right? Could do that because I think I think that's an underappreciated uh, ability in the workforce today. Do you have a go-to interview question? Because I, I we had one guest that like always asked a joke as an interview uh, question. You know, I... I I, you know, I tend to ask about um, something that looks like it's a little bit personal on their resume, because obviously you can't ask the personal to try and get it. And usually I try and ask about why they like that or what was interesting about that or what, you know, what was their favorite part of the job? I try and I'm trying to get a little bit of personal piece. If I can't, I sometimes ask people what their fate, if they could have their own, own their um, if they could have any superpower. What would it be and why? I kind of like that question, although it's a little cheesy, just because every you know, in a world where more and more we see Marvel and 
super heroes, right? Like we're in a world where I feel people are thinking about that stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, and you get interesting answers, right? So what would yeah. be your superpower, Dan? Yeah. I mean, I think what I would want is the ability to slow time, right? And to freeze time or slow time so that I could actually do more and choose to use that time better. Man, you were ready for that question. <laughs> I know. I know. That's an incredible. But you know what? I, I wish you would slow time. That would be fabulous. Wouldn't that be great? Isn't that a cool superpower? Isn't right? there a song? If I could turn back time. Wow. I didn't know he does music. Sure. Good. Sure There's a lot about Chris you don't know. Stick with us. <laughs> we'll sure have a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, do you want to ask the last question about the impact, at least? Sure. Um, so well, this, uh, yeah, this is the Impact Real Estate Podcast. Right. This is the name right. of it. This is the Impact Real Estate Podcast. So we would like to know what type of impact you and your business have in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, our um, vision is building a world of healthier uh, properties, right? So, you know, we're focused on healthcare, veterinary healthcare now and expanding. And I genuinely believe that um, if we can continue to channel resources, to people that are um, engaging in healthcare practice, veterinary now, um, and channel those resources into the properties where healthcare is delivered, that that actually that actually improves health, that improves healthy outcomes for pets, and now for ophthalmologists and more broadly. And so, I think that's a social good. Healthier properties are a good thing. Um, so that's I think I'd say one impact. Uh, look, the other is um, I've been blessed over the last. 13 years to be in the veterinary sector. And one of the nice things is it's really nice to work with professionals that are passionate, right? Because their passion is infectious, right? And yeah. by and large, people that are passionate about their profession are, are infectious and tend to do more good than not. And so that's also a blessing. Anyway, those yeah. are two things. People who are passionate about life in general. Just do what makes you passionate, right? And it's, it will work. Uh, well, Dan, that was an amazing interview. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. It was Appreciate great it. getting to know you. Nice